At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See to, or see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go, go in search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. Glad to be with you this morning. My name is Jack. I'm one of the elders here at Remedy. Um, it's really good to be back. I've been out of the country for the past couple of weeks. Um, we were in, Carrie and I were in Peru uh, with an International World Changers Project and was one of the best mission trips I've ever been on. Saw God do some absolutely amazing things. It was a fantastic time, but we do miss our church family when we're not here. So happy to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning is... Uh, something a uh, a first for both Fudd and myself and what I mean by that is a lot of times when you've if you've heard me preach in the past it's always been either I've done my own series or a standalone or Fudd was sick so I just pulled something out of my pocket and prayed the Lord would do something with it and uh, this morning uh, I'll be just preaching right along the next text in Matthew so if you've been with us we've been going verse by verse through Matthew and uh, this morning, we're just going to continue on. We'll be in Matthew 18. Uh, Fudd finished up Matthew 17 last week. And, uh, and at the same time, finished the Messiah Identity Revealed series. And so this week, we begin the next section of Matthew, Matthew 18. And uh, the title of this next, um, I guess, sub-series, if you will, is uh, Kingdom Community. 
Um, and in Matthew 18, there's a marked shift in what's going on uh, with, with Christ. And in the Messiah, the Identity Revealed series, he's, he's, there's marked pattern of him showing this is who I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who's coming to die for the sins of the world. I am establishing a kingdom. And when you get to Matthew 18, the, the shift, the turn is for those who are in the kingdom... This is what it looks like. And not so much this is what the kingdom looks like because it is, those of you who are in the kingdom community, this is what life looks like. This is what you should be striving for. This is the pattern. This is the way that it's all going to come together. And he focuses on how we relate to each other within the community and how we uh, respond to each other and how we treat each other. And we'll see that over the next several chapters. Jesus begins laying these out. He does it in his typical fashion. He'll do some straightforward teaching. There'll be some parables. There'll be some different things that'll come up all interwoven. And we find the connecting theme there is those who are part of the kingdom, this is what life looks like. This is who, who you are. This is how we respond to each other and to those that are within the kingdom. Um, what we, do, what we don't find is that he gives us a lot of specifics. So he doesn't say every situation that you are going to face as a believer, let me tell you every situation you're going to face and exactly how to respond in that situation. But what he does do is say, here are some very broad principles that when we see them and we understand them, they give us information and a good directive to how we respond in all those smaller, unique situations. And so Christ lays out these broad principles and says, this is how life works within the kingdom community. And as you encounter these specific situations, what you're going to do is you're going to go to these principles and they're going to show you how to respond to those situations. So he lays those out for us. And what I want to do before we start, uh, I want to pray. I want to say, that, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be in this text for two weeks. Um, and it'll be something a little bit different for me. I usually don't preach a few verses, skip a few, and then preach a few more. But because I believe this is really just one unit, this, this, this whole thing is one unit, we're going we're gonna to break out a few verses today, discuss them, and then come back to the other verses next week. And as we get in the middle of this, I'll kind of explain why we're doing that. So um, I really need us to, to pray more for me than for you. Uh, so if you would join me in doing that, we will get started. Father, you are very gracious to us, and we, we long for you. We long to know what pleases you and what honors you and what glorifies you. So, Father, I pray now as we open your word that you would speak to us, that you would take our hearts and you would grant us deep affections for Jesus, that you would give us desires to do the things which honor you. And I pray that you would um, guide us into lives that reflect the fact that we are part of your kingdom, the community of the called out ones, and that we would live in such a way that the world would know that we've been redeemed. So, Father, would you speak to us now? Guard us from any man-centered, self-starting desires and put our hearts steadfast on Jesus. We need you, we love you, and we rely on you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So kind of a background as to where we are. I won't 
give you every little bit. If you want to know what happened in, in chapter 17, uh, get the past couple of sermons. They're online. You can download those and listen to them. But, but Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on top of the mountain. He's transfigured. He, he takes on the, the glory that he had with the Father before he came to the earth. They're blinded. Peter wants to put up tents. God speaks to him. Peter shuts his mouth. They all come down the mountain. When they come down the mountain, Jesus, by the way, is saying, okay, guys, by the way, that was really cool and all. Don't tell anybody what you just saw. You know? And if I'm an apostle, I'm going, what? Did you, that was the most awesome thing I'd ever seen, and I can't tell anybody about it. And Jesus comes down. He heals a boy who uh, has a demon. So he casts out the demon, and then he shows he's the son of God by, by just showing up the Pharisees. Once again, they come up. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus says, uh, you know, I really don't have to pay this tax, but uh, hey, Peter, go fishing, catch the fish. First one you catch is going to have this coin in it. It'll be enough to pay the tax for you and me. You know, and we're not even told that Peter does this. It's just kind of like Jesus says, okay, look, here's the thing. I don't have to do this because I'm the son of God, but I tell you what, Peter, go fishing, catch the fish, pay for it. And we're not even told that it actually, that Peter even did this. We just, we just know Peter, Peter listened and they did it. But right in the middle of chapter 17, something interesting happens. In 17, uh, verse 23, I'll read 22 and 23. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says, And they, meaning the disciples, were greatly distressed. So in the midst of all of this, Jesus is revealing his identity as the Messiah. And he's not coming as the conquering hero, meaning he's going to kick out Rome and restore Israel to the great power that they once were, which is what the disciples thought that he was going to do. When you see Acts chapter 1, even after he dies and is raised, they come up and they ask him, hey, is it time? Are you going to set up the kingdom? And Jesus is like, you don't get it, guys. I'm coming and dying, but I'm def- causing a greater victory than, than kicking out Rome. I'm defeating sin and death. I'm about to take it right now. And when I'm raised from the dead, it's going to show that I've defeated all of that. They don't get it. All they hear is, Jesus is going to die. And it says they were greatly distressed. But what's interesting is it's not long after that we get to the scene where chapter 18 picks up. Now, we don't have all the details in Matthew, but Mark and Luke record kind of the preceding events to this. Matthew just says, at that time, which is, is a transition statement. He's not saying definitely, like as soon as Peter said, as soon as Jesus told Peter to go catch the fish and pay the tax, he's not saying right then the disciples asked. It's, it's a transition statement. It's right in the same time. He's right there. And Mark says that they're on the road to Capernaum. And you kind of get the picture that Jesus is leading the way and the disciples are kind of back behind him. And what we find is their despair over Christ's death has turned into something very different. Now they were, in, they were in agony, they were in great despair, and now they're back here and they're arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. So now Jesus is walking out in front, he's just told them we're going to die, and they're back here saying, no man, it's me, I'm the one, I sat by him at dinner the other night, he told me a secret, I can't tell you, it's a secret, you know, Peter, James, and John, I went up on the mountain, I saw something, Jesus told me I couldn't tell you, I'm about to tell you so that you know I'm the greatest, And so they're back here, and they're just kind of going back and forth. And Luke says that Jesus, it's not like they were walking all around Jesus in a big mob, and they're arguing, he hears what's going on. Jesus knows, he discerns what's going on, he knows what's in their heart. And Luke says when they got there, Jesus, in the 
awesome way that Jesus does. Just looked at him and said, so what were, y'all, what were you guys talking about on the road back there? And you kind of, you know, in your mind's eye, you see all 12 of them going, nothing, we weren't talking about anything. But Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? And this question right here is what they were talking about. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Come on, Jesus, we need to know. I mean, you've already told us you're setting up this kingdom. Come on, which one of us is the greatest? And I think part of this could be coming from the fact that Peter has kind of risen in prominence a little bit. If you remember in chapter 16, Peter, you know, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they're throwing out all these ideas. And Peter says, no, Jesus says, who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And then Peter is with the three that have gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then when the Pharisees come and want to ask Jesus a question, they go to Peter and they ask him, why does your master not do this? And so you almost kind of get the sense Peter's risen to prominence and these guys are, are jealous or they don't know what's going on. And so they've got this argument over which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus does what he always does, is he just cuts to the heart of the matter, which is the first point I want to bring out, and that's this. Members of the kingdom community must view themselves with humility. Members of the kingdom community must view themselves with humility. Because here's what happened. They asked him the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And what Jesus does is he looks over and he calls a little boy. And he just brings him and sets him right in the middle of the disciples. And notice what he says. And don't fly past this. You've got to see the wording here. Jesus says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus did there? They were asking the question, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus pulls a child over and says, unless you turn and become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you want to talk about raining on somebody's parade. This just should floor them and it should floor us. that They're so worried about who's the greatest Jesus raises cause for concern that they're not even part of the kingdom. And so we got to ask the question, why is it that Jesus would use a child? Why is it that Jesus would pull them out? Is there something about a child that we need to revert back to childlikeness or something that we're born with that we need to be like? And I think D.A. Carson um, gets this spot on. Um, He brings out a really good statement. He says, the child is a model in this context, not of innocence, faith or purity, but of humility and unconcern for social status. Jesus assumed people are not naturally like that. They must change to become like little children. In other words, he's not saying you need to go back to the way you were when you were born. He pulls the child in as an example of somebody who's not clamoring for status, who's not trying to become the greatest, somebody who's not concerned about that, somebody who's simply happy that Jesus called his name over and would let him come and hang out with him. Notice that. When he called the child, it doesn't say the child puffed out his chest or anything. I don't want to read in the scripture, but he just calls this child over and he just sets him in front of him and says, guys, unless you become like children, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then notice the parallel that he has in verse 4. It says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody enters the kingdom of heaven unless they're humble like a child, and then those humble ones are the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus has just really leveled the playing field here. I'm not a fan of uh, church cliches. They drive me crazy, especially when they're on signs out in front of the church. I hate those. I I wish the Lord would give me permission to run them all over, but he has not, so I... I, uh, I kind of control myself a little bit, but I grew up in uh, in churches and been around churches where those kind of are those rule the day. You know, a pastor's got a book of them and he's got to use at least five of them in each sermon type thing. Um, and one of them that I heard that it's not a bad, there's nothing bad about it, but so many times it just becomes like a verbal pause. Is heard people say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Like, what does that mean? Like the cross is not on a hill; it's on a plane. Is on a stage? I mean, what's going on? But the point of that saying is nobody is closer to Jesus because they're up, you know, they're closer to the cross. We're all level. We're all on the same playing field. And what Jesus does for his disciples right here is says, there's nothing you've done that makes God think you're great. Now hang with me because that sounds kind of bad. So hold on, with, hold on right here. There's nothing you've done that has earned you great favor with God. Just because you went up on that mountaintop doesn't mean you're the best. Just because you made that confession doesn't mean that you're better than everybody else. What Jesus says is, it's not about you, it's about me. And what we have here is the disciples are revealing sinfulness in their heart, and Jesus cuts to the chase. He just gets to the very root of what's bringing this up in them, is that they are focused on themselves when they should be focused on Christ. And so this trying to one-up each other, who's better, reveals that Jesus isn't the center of their universe. They are still the center of their universe. And what happens is when we are the center of our universe, we worship ourselves. We do everything we can to make ourselves better, to put ourselves on a pedestal. And what Jesus says is when you do that, you've got an idol. You're worshiping another God, a God of self. And you've not fully given your life to me. Jesus exposes that this is a, a root of sin that's in our life. You know, dealing with humility is, is, a, um, is a tough thing. I really wanted to come up with a cool definition of humility. Um, it was a pride thing to want to have the, a really good definition of humility. Um, but then as I was studying, I found uh, John Calvin's definition based off this verse. And to be honest with you, it's absolutely awesome. So uh, I will humbly submit to you his definition of humility, which is much better than anything I could come up with. And this is what he says. In hips we obtain a short definition of humility. That man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren, or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. Really, I just I love that definition because it hits so many of the avenues. What he's saying here is that those who are humble recognize that we've earned nothing from God. What I mean by that is we've not done anything that is that is granted uh, God's special merit. We've not earned something from God. We haven't been good enough. We haven't bought the big enough Bible. We haven't read it. We haven't walked around with the right Christian t-shirt or done all the right Christian things so that God says, man, I am so glad that you are on my team. 
Like, I totally would not be good if you weren't here. You are so awesome that I am going to promote you. You are now a corporal. You know, you're, you're good. You're on your way to becoming general. I mean, you're just, you're awesome. I'm, I'm, that's not the case. None of us are there. None of us are something because we've earned something from God. In fact, when Jesus reveals this, he says, guys, you're all there. You're all at the point that you need to understand that you've got nothing to offer but sinful rebellion. That's what you bring to the table is your sin. There's nothing any of us want to be proud of. At any point in time that we start saying, man, look what I have done. God is lucky to have me. We are now operating in the sphere of pride. And we are in danger of not even being part of the kingdom. And so true humility says, you know what? There's nothing I've done to earn anything from God whatsoever. And when you understand that, that's when you get to the other parts. You don't see yourself as better than someone else. I don't try to have others think that I'm better than they are. I'm just content with the fact that I belong to Christ and I want Jesus alone to be the center of attention. That's what, that's what humility is all about. And that is what separates the humility of a Christian from humility of people who aren't Christians. Because reality is we just got to be honest. There are humble people who aren't Christians. I mean, it's not like we've got the, the corner on the market of humility. But here's the difference. Somebody who's humble who's not a Christian just doesn't think much about themselves. They pull themselves out of the center and stop there. The person who is a believer who is humble pulls themselves out of the center and wants Christ to be there. So instead of just taking the focus off themselves, they're doing everything they can to put the focus on Jesus. You see the difference? See, somebody in the world who's humble just says, I'm not going to be the center of attention. But somebody who's a Christian who's humble says, I'm not going to be the center of attention. Jesus is. So I'm going to gear my life completely so that everything I do is pointing to Jesus in every single manner. And what you find is that the disciples weren't doing that. What they were trying to do is figure out how they were going to be the center of attention. How they were going to be the one that people would be looking at and saying that they're great. And Jesus exposes, guys, it's not about you. It's about me. So he, he brings it up, and then he says, and he, and he continues to bring up this idea of humility um, by using the term little ones. He uses the term little ones over and over in this passage. You notice, so he says, um, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. But then notice what he says in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin would be better to have a millstone fastened around his neck. That's going to be fun to talk about, by the way, next week. That's sarcasm, not fun. Um, Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus continued using this, and this repeated usage of the little ones shows us something powerful. Jesus isn't just talking about children here. The mistake that we can make is that when Jesus pulls this child over and says, you got to become like this child, do not despise the little ones. The mistake that we can make is he's talking about, don't stop children from believing in me, which is true. But here's the reality. You and I, as followers of Christ, we're the little ones. We're the ones who have taken ourselves and said, it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. I'm not big, I'm not great, I'm not anything. I'm one of the little ones. 
And it's not a derogatory term, and it's not a term that should make us feel low and horrible and, and not good. It's actually an amazing thing. Because now I come to Christ and say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you. And he lavishes love and lavishes grace and mercy. And he brings us into our, his family. And he wraps his arm around us because we recognize I'm one of the little ones. I've got nothing. You see, the term little one doesn't make us feel bad. In fact, if we start saying, well, I don't want to be a little one, we realize that we're right there with the disciples. We are the little ones. So members of the community, kingdom community, must view themselves with humility. But the other thing is, members of the kingdom community must view each other with humility. And now the fact of the matter is, this is kind of like two sides of the same coin. Because when you, when you talk about our own pride issues, or our own humility, it, it almost always has to do with other people. So we have to deal with, okay, this is how you need to, this is how you need to think, this is how you need to um, live. But then the flip side of that is, now, what is it about other people that keeps me from saying I'm better than them or I'm something different? And what Jesus does is he really brings out two um, different points. We're going to take and we're going to skip over verses 5 through 9 just for this week. Um, Here's why. Jesus talks about our humility in 1 through 4 and in, in 10 through 14, our humility in dealing with others. And when you start dealing with humility, sin comes up in your life. So now what we've got to say is, okay, if I'm, if I'm wrestling with and pursuing this humility, it's going to expose sin in my life, my sin and the and sin of others. So what we want to do this week is we want to talk about, okay, this is what it means to pursue humility. This is what humility is. And then next week, Lord willing, we want to talk about when that happens and sin comes up, how do we deal with that in such a way that Jesus is honored and it's not all about us. So that's what we want to do. So, Jesus really says two things, two reasons. One, their angels always see the face of his Father in heaven. And two, it's not the will of the Father that any of them should perish. So he's talking about the little ones. Don't despise them. Their angels always see the face of the Father. It's not his will that any of them would perish. Now, I get to deal with a couple of fun things here, all right? Which is why I think Fudd wanted me to preach this. Just joking, just joking. He probably wants to preach it himself, but too bad. I'm up here. Um, in verse 10, it says, See that you not despise one of these little ones. And then there's this really interesting statement that Jesus says, For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's crazy. Like, what does that mean? So there's a couple different options. Some people have taken this verse right here to mean that everybody has a guardian angel. So it's kind of like when you're born, Jesus assigns you an angel, you know, and that angel just follows you around and guards you everywhere. The problem with that interpretation is that there's really nowhere in Scripture that, that we're all given an angel who guards over us. Um, D.A. Carson, who I mentioned earlier, and, and a couple other guys... They, they looked at this and they said, okay, it's not guardian angels, but we think that this term is actually referring to the spirits of the little one. And they, they look at places, uh, in different places in Scripture where the term angelos or, or the Greek word messenger is used. And they say, we think that what this is is that their spirits are always, you know, they, they always see God face to face. The problem I have with that interpretation is that this is really in present tense. So for their spirits to be in front of God in heaven... They have to be in God in heaven, so that would mean that they would have to be dead. But Jesus says, 
they always see. So it's kind of this idea that they are even now seeing. So it's got to be something with actual angels. And I think what helps us is when we look at two verses in Scripture, uh, Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And then Hebrews 1, 13 through 14, especially verse 14, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. And to which one of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet, which is a prophecy of Christ. He's showing that Christ is greater than the angels. But this is what he says about angels in verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who, inherit, who are to inherit salvation? So the writer of Hebrews tells us that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. So I think what Jesus is getting at here is not that we all have a guardian angel, but that God cares for his little ones by sending angels to minister to them, to take care of them, to help watch over them. And that's a powerful thing when you realize that it's not just, okay, God's going to send people to take care of them. But God sends these angels to help watch over us. And those angels have full access to the face of the Father. It shows the concern of God for those who were His. So much that He doesn't say, man, I'm going to save them. I'm going to leave them alone and hope they make it. Jesus says, you don't need to despise them because God cares deeply for them and he even sends the angels to help watch over them and minister to them and those angels have full access to him. And so what it reveals is not not supposed to get tripped up over what these angels are and who they are and how they work and can we see them, can we not see them, have we ever run into them, you know, do we like see sparks over our shoulders, is that where they are? No, what he's getting at here, the point is God's love for the little ones. He cares deeply about them, and he even sends angels to watch over and minister them and care for them. And so Jesus uses this to help us understand that God deeply loves those that are his. And then he gets to the second point, which is that it's not the will of the Father that any of them should perish. But before we get there, I want to I ask a question. I polled the audience in verse uh, in verse 1 in uh, the first service did anybody notice that there's not a verse 11 did anybody notice that okay i got at least one all right if you're reading the esv text which is the text we've chosen here at at our church to be kind of our our standard text you'll notice that there is a verse 10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. And you'll notice right away there's a verse 12. There's not a verse 11. Now one of the things we, we do here is that we believe that you just want to teach the Bible verse by verse. And so when we get to this and there's not a verse here, we need to kind of explain why. Um, so what I want to do is I want to take just a second um, to try to briefly and unconvolutedly, I just made that up, explain what's going on here and why this is that way. Um, what I would like to do is commend to you a sermon by Pastor John Piper. I uh, preached it in March of 2011. Um, he dealt with a passage that is similar to this, 
Um, but it's not the exact same passage. March 6, 2011, you can find it on desiringgod.org. Um, he spends a lot longer going into this, so if this is something that interests you or something you've got more questions about, I highly recommend going and listening to that sermon. Uh, it would be a, it'll do great value for you. Um, but here's what's going on. When we get, at least in, in my text, and some of your texts may have verse 11. Here's what happened. In, in, in mine, there's a little number 7. I look down at the bottom. It says, some manuscripts add verse 11. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. And what happens is, is our Bibles... Old Testament is based on Hebrew text and one Greek text, which is a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. And the New Testament is based on a lot, lot, lot of Greek manuscripts, multiple manuscripts, over 5,800 Greek manuscripts that we have available. And until 1516, every one of those Greek texts were handwritten or hand-copied. And it wasn't like you could go down to the local market and just buy a copy of the Bible or a copy of the New Testament. They're very rare and they're very valuable. So what would happen is is if a church or an individual wanted a copy, there was actually a person who had to sit down with an existing copy and copy it by hand. And so some of these guys, this is what they did for a profession. And they were very careful with it. But what would happen is that every now and then, they would reverse a word, so they'd switch the word order. Or they would, they would, their eyes, they'd be reading and copying. And just like we would do, sometimes you know how you're reading and you skip a line. And they'd write that in, or they'd miss a word, or something would happen. And so what happened is some of these Greek manuscripts don't agree. Now, we could look at that and say, well, doggone, how in the world can you even trust the Bible? If all these Greek manuscripts don't agree, how do we know which one is right? Well, here's the amazing thing. With 5,800 Greek manuscripts, there are so many of them that what happens is if you read something in one, like that doesn't make sense or that doesn't seem to fit, and you compare it to the vast number of others, it helps you to see, oh, wait a minute. This manuscript here, it looks like the, the scribe missed a line because all these other manuscripts have it or These manuscripts, which are the oldest, they're the best, they're the most complete, they're the most thorough, we look at those and we see that this one little group of manuscripts has this verse 11 added. The large evidence shows that, wait a minute, we don't think this was part of the actual text. And so what the translators do, it's it's the science of what's called textual criticism, what they do is they'll look at that and they'll say, you know what? The large amount of evidence makes it look like this was not part of the original text. So what we're going to do, because there are several manuscripts that have it, we're going to stick it in a footnote, and we're not going to include it in the text. Now, here's the thing about the variants that we do find in Scripture. John Piper states this, which I thought was just really good, so I want to share it with you. What is most significant for the reliability and authority of the New Testament is that the variations that textual critics are unsure of are not the kind that would change any Christian doctrine. That's why I I told you earlier that, that almost every variation comes when a scribe omits a line or they reverse word order or they change one letter in a word or they do something that it's easy to say. That's just, uh, we, we see that error. We see there's a problem, and we know how we don't, we won't include that. So, 
if there's errors in some of these manuscripts, does that then help us to say, well, we can't really trust the Bible or there might be errors in the Bible? Um, I would say no. In fact, if anything, the vast number of manuscripts helps us to have even greater confidence. The translators who are looking at these manuscripts and are pouring over them, praying over them, thinking, what is the original reading? Don't just throw anything and everything in. Think about it. If they just said anything that a Greek, that if, it, well, if it's written in Greek, it's got to go in the Bible. They understand that people made these copies. And so they want to be very, very careful that what they put in was true to the original. And with the vast number of manuscripts, we are able to get back to what the original said. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts. And in reality, that's a good thing. Because if we had the actual paper that Matthew wrote down the Gospel of Matthew on, people would set it up in a shrine somewhere. And they would charge money for people to come in and look at it. And people would start worshiping that instead of looking at the Messiah as to whom he wanted us to worship and to look at. The other thing is, it should really cause us to be thankful that God would allow so many manuscripts to be preserved, that we can look at them and with great authority say, this is the original reading. And to know that there are men and women who've devoted their lives to say, we don't want something extra to be in the Bible. We don't want something frivolous. We don't want somebody's opinion. We want to know what the original said. And that's what we want to get at. So when you come across something like this, don't let it make you say, well, now I can't trust the Bible. Actually, what it should do is help you to say, man, I really can trust what's in here because I know that so much has been put into it. So that's what happens when you get to a verse like that. You will not find that very often. But every now and then you may come across that. And what I wanted to do is to give you some tools to look at that and kind of understand it. So verse 11, the ones that do have it, has, For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Well, that kind of odd how that wouldn't, you know, so you can kind of see it doesn't really seem to fit. But that's nothing heretical. That's nothing unbiblical. In fact, you can search that phrase and you can find the Son of Man came to save the lost um, in the book of Luke. Almost that exact phrase is given. So it's not like this is an unbiblical term or something that's going to change anything. We know that Jesus came to save the lost. But it's at this point in time, they don't feel like that was original to the text here, so they've put it down. But it's in context, even what's going on. So let's get to the second point then. If you've got more questions about that, would love to talk to you about it. I refer you to the sermon. Uh, Fudd's really smart, so you can talk to him. He's got better answers than I do. Uh, but if we'd like to talk more about it, we can. Um, but what Jesus does here is he does give us the second reason. Um, and he, he does it in classic Jesus style by telling a parable. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, so it's just a simple parable, setting, story. A shepherd, a good shepherd, he's on the, on the mountaintop, he's got 100 sheep. And all of a sudden he realizes he's only got 99. He doesn't chalk it up to, well, that's just part of my losses, I'll write it off on my taxes. You know, it's just like, oh, that's no big deal. He says, I've got 99. There's one that's missing, and he leaves the 99 to go look for the one that's missing. And when he finds the one that's missing, he rejoices more over that than the fact that he's got 99. 
And Jesus tells this parable. He makes this a stunning connection because this is what he says. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he states it. It's interesting the way he states it. He, he does it. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is the will of his Father that all of the little ones should be found and not perish. This is, this is huge. Because what Jesus tells us is that all who belong to the Father are found because the Father goes looking for them. That is huge. That is massive. That is why Jesus came to the world. And that helps us when we are on this platform, not this platform, but when we start looking out and we start sinfully starting to to put ourselves against someone else or starting to wonder if we're better than them or, or they're better than us, what's going on, what we realize is there's no reason to look down on anyone because we were all the lost sheep who had gone astray and God came looking for us. You see, in these two things, Jesus reveals the value of us to God. We bring nothing to him. That's what he talks about in the beginning, this humility, this recognizing. I've got nothing to bring to God. I've got nothing to earn his love. I've got nothing to earn his favor. I've not been good enough that he has now said I am worth a lot. Jesus says we're worth a lot because God has said we're worthwhile to him. That's what it is. We've not earned it. We've not gotten there. We've not become better. We've not one up somebody else. He just looks at us and says, I love you, therefore you are worthy. That's a powerful thing. Because here's the reality. At any point in time that we then begin looking pridefully at other people, we are showing contempt for the one who says they are valuable. Think about it. You start looking at somebody and be like, man, really? God, them? I mean, have you seen what they've done? Have you seen the way they talk? Have you seen the way they live? Do you know what's happened in the past? You re- Seriously, God, them? What we ultimately are saying is, God, you really messed up on this one. I can't believe you would show them love. I can't believe that you would love them and forgive them. And we start acting as if we are higher than God, impugning him, When reality, Jesus is like, you need to turn the focus back on yourself because the fact of the matter is any time that I start looking at somebody else and asking why God would love them, I should really turn that back on myself but say, hey, God, why, why would you love me? Why would you care anything about me? There's no reason why. Everybody should be saying this about me. I can't be saying this about somebody else because I look back at myself and I realize, God, there's no reason why you should love me. And yet, You send angels to care for me, and you came looking for me when I wasn't looking for you. It's an amazing, an amazing thing. And so Jesus lays this out for us and lays this out for the disciples that here they are worried about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, it's not about who's the greatest. It's about me. So we have to look at that and say, wow, man, Jesus Help me not to live this way. 
So the question is, when we come to the end of this and the application, what, what do we do with it? Now, the easy thing, the easy thing would be for me to stand up here. So the application is, be humble. There's a problem with that. Jesus isn't just saying, be humble. Because, track with me here, if he says, be humble, and then we become humble, what have we done? We've done something. All right, so wait a minute, that's backwards. We can't, because then I would have earned something, so I'd have a reason to be proud, which would then make me not humble. So is it real humility, and it just causes a loop in the universe, and everything implodes. So we're not going to go there. But what Jesus is saying here, he says, this is the reality of what you must be. And as he exposes it to us, we realize, I can't do that on my own. It causes problems. And that's when he says, you turn and you look at the cross. And we understand that at the cross, this is possible because he's provided it for us. We understand that as we struggle with this sin, not only has it been paid for, but grace has flowed down on us that we can now live this way because we don't have to one-up anybody else. We don't have to be better than anybody else. We don't have to be the best mom. We don't have to be the best teacher. We don't have to be the most loyal part of the church. We look at it and we understand that we don't have to earn anything. We are His. We don't have to be better than anybody else. And the crazy thing is, is that motivates us to want to do the things that honor God. Because we're now free. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to be better than anybody else. So here's a couple of things that I think are helpful for us as we start thinking about uh, application. What do we do with this? Um, We think back to Calvin's definition I remember he said that the man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God nor proudly despises brethren or aims at being thought superior to them but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. That really leads me to a couple of questions. One, do we find ourselves at any point thinking that we've earned favor with God? Some of you will be like, no, I don't, I don't get that. Okay, but some of you might. God, look what I've, look what I've done. Look at how long I've been a Christian. Look at how I read my Bible every single day. Look at how I'm discipling these three or four people. Look at how I'm leading this community group. Surely God loves me more because of that. And most of the time we won't verbalize that. But we can get a sense of, I do all these things, therefore I'm good. Jesus cuts to the heart of that and says, those things are good, but if that's what your value is on, you're putting yourself in the center. Remember, Christian humility is like, this isn't about me, this is about Jesus. And so, yes, do those things, do those things well, but don't find your identity in that. Find your identity in the fact that you are Christ's. And if he so chooses to use you in a position like that, awesome. Use all your gifts and ability to make people as lovers of Jesus as much as possible. And if you're not in that position, praise the Lord, you're his anyway. Don't let it become something where we're vying to say, I'm better or I'm greater because of this. Other question is, do you have areas in your life where you desire yourself to be exalted and not God? Because that's really what happens. Pride is when the focus is on you and not on Jesus. So we could come up with a whole lot of different lists and different things, but the reality is, where is it that you desire the focus to be on you and not on Jesus? And when you can answer that, that you can pinpoint exactly where God wants to work in your heart.
Um, humility is essential to the life of a believer. In fact, J.C. Ryle is quoted as saying that it is the defining characteristic of a person who's been saved. Um, we need to make sure, though, that we're thinking about humility rightly because here's the thing. It's, it's not morbid self-loathing, okay? Jesus isn't calling you, you know, telling you to go sit in a corner for 10 minutes and think about how horrible you are. It's not, it's not what he's doing. He's not saying, you are wretched, and I want you to think about how bad you are. So just go. Jesus never comes down and reveals our sin to us just so that we can sit and mope in it. He reveals our sin to us, one, to magnify his grace, but then also so that he might then, by the power of the Spirit, take that from us and change us to be more like him. And so his revealing of our sin is not so that we just feel horrible about it. It's so that we see it and we hate it and we trust him more and follow him more because we see the power of the cross has already overcome this. This is true. This is here in my life. Jesus, would you do for me what I cannot do for myself? And we strive and we find he takes that away and he receives honor and glory in it. But it's also not work harder. We've already, t- already talked about this a little bit. He doesn't show this to you and so then say, okay, now go be more humble. Be humbler. Be the humblest. Be the greatest. You're not there yet. Try to be more like a kid. And then it's also not false humility. You know, false humility is that idea of, man, you know, I'm just so bad. I'm just really not, you know, it's all about Jesus. It's not good. You know, it's not about me. When the reality is you're wanting to talk about it not being about you so that it is about you. That's the hard one. And that's the tough one. It's like, like how do I be humble? Like, I want it to be about Jesus, so I don't want to say, oh, it's just all about Jesus. But then in my heart, am I, am I really, like, am I trying to say that so other people would think I'm spiritual? Don't overthink it. Just make it about Jesus. Somebody pays you a compliment? Thanks. God is good. That, that, that's all you got to do. You don't have to make a big deal about it. Sometimes we're so worried that we're, we've got false humility or that there's pride, and, and it's like we defeat ourselves when somebody pays us a compliment. If God has gifted you or put you in a position or something, it is for his glory that people would be made more like Jesus. Keep that in the forefront of your mind and live that way. A um, couple things to think about. Um, you know, we, we often see looking down on others being spiritually superior as a pride thing. The reality is looking down on those who are stronger can be just as much of an emphasis of pride. What I mean by that is I've seen people be like, man, you got all your fancy words and all your Bible learning, but man, I just, I got Jesus. That's all I need. You can go read another book, learn your other, you know, seminary words and all that, but I don't need all that. I just got Jesus. And it, and it kind of comes off as like, well, I don't have to be anything. You know, I've, I just got Jesus. Well, what that is, that's spiritual pride. You may say, well, I don't have anything. I don't have, no, that, that's spiritual pride. It's elevating yourself. Another way is, um, I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah right now in my, my, uh, my Bible reading. And um, this is one of those things that, that I just felt as I read it this morning. I just felt like God was saying, I think this is something to talk about because this is something that I think a lot of us deal with. Jeremiah is standing at the entrance to the temple, Jeremiah 7. God's giving him a message to the people. Um, and this is part of what he says. He says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. 
You know, it's, it's spiritual pride and arrogance and what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace to say, I can live however I want and come put on a good face on Sunday morning and let everybody think that I'm good or go to community group and talk about all the things you know and do when the reality is you're just living completely the other way all the rest of your life. See, hypocrisy and pride go hand in hand. And so if you're putting on a show so that people will think you're spiritual, I plead with you, love Jesus, stop chasing the world, and fall in love deeper with him. And what you'll find is that that false spirituality that you put on show for everybody else will actually be real, and you'll encourage people and push them closer to Jesus quickly and then I'm done um, I want to say that in viewing others a couple of questions that are good for us to ask is do we accept those who aren't like us um, you know you're naturally going to be drawn to people who are like you and remember that as Jesus is giving this teaching he's talking to those who are members of the community who are members of the kingdom it has bearing on how we relate to people who aren't Christians but so much of this teaching is directly related to how we relate to others who are Christians who are believers and so what we find here is this is very direct on how you and I relate to other people within the church and so what Jesus does here is he talks about the fact that we don't need to despise others. And one of the ways that this can happen is that we can even form little groups within a church of people who are, who are like-minded and who have personalities that gather together. And that's good. That's okay. But it's when those groups that are gathered together begin looking at other people and say, you know what, they would really never be part of our group. They're to this, or they're not enough this, or they are whatever, and fill in the blank. And at any point in time that we begin acting like that, we, we, we have an air of superiority. And we have to be careful because pride is not always, I'm better than. It's, they just can't be with us. It's okay, I can say hello to them on Sunday mornings, but I really don't want to be anything with them. Now, now hear me, it's not saying you've got to be best friends with everybody in the church. But what it is saying is that at any point in time when we catch ourselves saying this person can't, can't be with us or we can't love them or we can't have them as part of, of the body, we are then kind of looking down on them and saying we can't do this. You will have people that you will connect with better, that you will become friends with. You're not going to be best friends with everybody, and that's okay. That's all right. God brings certain people into your life that will encourage you and that you can encourage. But never let it become... I'm better than this person, or this person can't be with us. And then the last thing um, I would say is, is it enough for us to be in Christ, or do we have to have a title or position to feel significant? Um, I, I served for several years on a church staff before we moved to Rock Hill, and I'm currently the campus minister for Baptist Collegiate Ministry for Winthrop. And I love both of those positions, but when... Um, when it was put forth that I would be an elder here before my installation, it was a, a weighty, a weighty thing. Um, and there are some of you men who right now are, are considering aspiring to the position of elder. So I want to take that in particular. I pray that had something come up 
whether the church didn't believe that I was fit for the position or there wasn't time or the foot had seen something in me that was not elder material. I pray that if they had said, it's not time for you to be an elder, that I would not have said, well, that's a bunch of junk. I know my heart. I know. And I pray that I would have still loved the church and served the church and been as much as part of the church, whether I had a position or not. I want to say that my heart would have been that way, but I know how sinful I am. And there could have been something like that. And for some of us, if we don't have that position, it doesn't have to be a position on stage. I mean, it could be, you, you know, well, if I'm not part of the worship team, then I'm just not good enough. Or if I'm not leading a community group, or I'm not good enough. Or they didn't ask me to do this, and I would have been really good at that. And I'm just going to get my feelings hurt because I really could have done that. At any one of those things, are we then saying, you know what? Because I don't have that position or that title, I'm not worthwhile, or I'm not good enough, or I don't want to be part of that group. That's, that's pride. You see, these are just some examples. The thing is, we could go on and on and on with so many examples of what pride does. And again, Jesus lays this broad principle. We take it back. Become like the little one. Don't clamor for status. Be satisfied and rest joyfully in the fact that you are his. And that is enough for all of us. Next week, Lord willing, what we want to do then is say, how do we deal with sin when it comes up? Because if there is an area that where we could, where pride can really rear its ugly head is when we have to start dealing with our sin, but especially the sins of others. And so we talked about humility this week, and let that be the background as we move into now how do we address sin in our lives and in the lives of others within the church. Um, I want to pray as a way of closing out, I am, I'm very excited um, that we have the opportunity to, um, as part of our worship, see someone be baptized. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing. After I pray, there's going to be a video, and you'll get to see J.C.'s testimony of what Christ has done in her life, and then uh, the beautiful act of baptism will be done. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll go into that. Father, you are fantastic. And that you would love us is an amazing thing. And Father, we stand in awe of you and your grace and your mercy. And I pray, Lord, that as we, as we experience and relish that grace and mercy, I pray that you would move us to more deeply love you and love others, that we would not um, see ourselves as better than others, but that we together would love you, that we would see those who may be wandering away and would reflect the Father's heart by going after them. Um, Father, I pray that you would take us and that you would use us and that we would be a church that exemplifies this very teaching. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.